0: If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. We are nearing the end of our trek through this actually relatively short letter, but we've been taking our time through it and and really examining piece by piece. Uh, If you would like to follow along as I read and, and as I go through this morning this text that we're going to be looking at but you don't have a Bible with you, uh, you can find a Bible in the row in front of you. Underneath, you'll find a black Bible. I think some might actually be blue as well as English Standard Version. Uh, That's what we'll be using, and you'll find our text on page 982 of that Bible. Now, before I read the text, uh, just to remind us and place this in context, we are again, nearing the end of this letter. This letter would have been read in one reading, just as uh, letters usually are, uh, and if I would encourage you, if you haven't read through uh, Paul's letters or if you haven't read through Philippians from start to finish, uh, just do it this afternoon. It's a, it's a quick and easy read, um, and you'll see how these themes kind of all tie together. But again, we've been going through it slowly, so now we're entering a section, as we have mentioned the past few weeks, a section of exhortation. Paul has near, uh, reached the end of the letter, and now he is in a section where he's giving a bunch of commands, a bunch of, grammatically speaking, imperatives. And one of the things that I like to remind us all, because we're in the section, is that Paul never gives commands to people in order that they may be saved, if I could put it that way. A lot of times, that's what we think. Our minds naturally go there. We don't understand, Paul says, that, that the gospel, being saved by grace alone, is something that naturally doesn't make sense to us. What makes sense to us is that we work for something, we earn something. And so, most people uh, in this country, probably if you ask them, how do you get to heaven, would have some measure of works uh, stated if they don't understand the gospel. Uh, Either they try to be a good person or they go to church or whatever it may be that then earns them a spot with God. What we have to understand is that Paul reverses that. Paul says that we cannot earn our way to heaven at all by our own doing. We are in sin. We have a sin nature. We are dead in sins and trespasses. And so what must happen first is that God, by his grace alone, through the righteousness of Christ alone, must save us. It is by that and that alone that we are saved. If you just go and think about one of the songs that we sung earlier uh, in, in the service, Yet Not I, but through Christ in me, uh, talking about how we long to follow Jesus and we long to serve him. And, and that is our plan and our goal. And by the Spirit's power, we will do that. But, but one of the lines in there says, I know I'm forgiven. No fate I dread. The future is sure, the price has been paid, for Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon. He was raised to overthrow the grave. To this I hold, my sin has been defeated. That's what we hope in. We don't hope and place our hopes in how well we accomplish these exhortations. Paul gives us these exhortations as those who have been saved. So that's where we are. We are in a section of exhortation for Christians. How do we live as the church? How do we live as those who have been saved and have been given the Holy Spirit? And you see here in chapter 4, begin at verse 4, all the way through chapter 4, verse 9, you have six exhortations. We've already looked at the first four. Rejoice, he repeats that. Let your reasonableness be known. Don't be anxious about anything, but let your requests be made known to God. Those are the things that we've already been commanded to do and have already looked at. The last two are the two we're going to look at today. And those are think about these things and practice these things. Think and practice. So our text is Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. And seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So, verse 8, Paul gives a whole list of things that we are to be thinking about. But before we look at that list, I want to, first of all, just think about the phrase, what does Paul mean by think about these things? Because he's not simply telling us to kind of think happy thoughts uh, that, that, that as we go about our day, uh, we just try to keep our mind on pleasant things. The word here, Translated think about, which is a fine translation, but it was often used in a mathematical setting. So oftentimes it's used as reckon this or calculate this or give careful thought to, something like that. Evaluate, let your mind dwell on this. Now when we think of Christianity today, I think not only because of how we as Christians oftentimes think of it, but also the way our our society tends to present Christianity, we oftentimes think of it as a religion or a practice that is somehow anti-thought. That, you know, if if you want, you can either embrace rationality and reason and science, or you can embrace irrationality and Christianity. Uh, It's interesting, C.S. Lewis who was already brilliant before he became a Christian, an Oxford scholar, uh, says in Mere Christianity essentially that that when he became a Christian, his thinking grew much deeper because now he was pondering the God of the universe. Christianity is not anti-thought. It is, in fact, a religion that commands us to think deeply. Jesus says, "Well, in Matthew chapter 22, one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law?" Jesus said to him, "Here's the great commandment. If you want to sum up the entire law, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Yeah, that's Christianity, right? And all your mind." Jesus is saying, with everything you have, you are to love the Lord your God and not yourself or anything else. Paul, in Romans chapter 12, verses one and two, he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, again, he's speaking to Christians, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The point is this. Before we even consider what it is we are to consider and think deeply about, we are to recognize and realize that Christians are called to use our minds, to be thinking deeply. And I think... You know, I I haven't lived in any other era of human history, so I don't know this for certain, but I would suppose that in all eras of human history, this is one of them where it is hardest to think deeply about anything. Just think about how often we are distracted by things. If you, I just got an email uh, or a text, something, I guess it was an email yesterday, uh, from Apple saying, here are the best apps for this year. And I went and looked at them, and I couldn't believe how many of them were focused on getting you to focus. All of these apps were all about accomplishing goals and being able to think clearly, and stay on task, and not be distracted. And I, I thought, how ironic, you know, the reason we have to have all these apps now to keep it, one of them was you, you, you plant this garden, and, and at the, as long as you stay on task, and you don't tell it that you've stepped away to check your, you know, YouTube videos, then this garden keeps flourishing and growing. But if you step away from your task and you, you know, get distracted by some stupid YouTube video, then your garden will start to wither. And so you're actually killing this thing that you've planted by, by being drawn away. The problem with that is that you have to actually tell it you're being distracted. I mean, you can always cheat that, right? like go be distracted and still let it keep growing. I mean, it doesn't know that you're distracted. But the reason we need all of these things to focus is because the iPhone itself has led to distraction. So we need it to help us to keep us from it, I mean, in a sense, you know? Cal Newport wrote a book called Deep Work, which I read, uh, I don't know, I guess it was last year, maybe two years ago now. Uh, Time flies. But essentially what he said is that tech companies that have created this mess are now looking for people who can do deep work because everyone that they hire seems to be able to think about this task that they tell them to do for about five minutes before they check their likes on Facebook. And so tech companies like Google are looking for people that can do deep work, that can just be given a task and sit and meditate on that one thing for a few hours before they get up and go look at something else. Paul is telling us that we as Christians are to think deeply or to calculate or to reckon with eight things. He lists them here in verse eight. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, that means lofty things, majestic things, or as one scholar says, things that lift the mind from the cheap and tawdry to that which is noble and good and of moral worth. Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, or as one scholar says, things that elicit from others not bitterness and hostility, but admiration and affection. Whatever is commendable, and then he kind of switches the language a little bit, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. So if we're a Christian and we read that list, if you're like me, maybe the first thing you think of is, well, obviously Paul is telling me to think about Christian things. That's got to be the case. I mean, if Paul's listing all of these things, we know who is just, we know who is pure, we know who is lovely, uh, and that is God himself. And so Paul is telling us to think about God, to think about the Bible all day, to think about Christian things all day. Well, in one sense, obviously, that's true. I mean, we are called to to set our minds on heavenly things. We are called to see everything through the lens of Scripture and the lens of God himself. But what's really interesting here, as scholars point out, is that Paul is purposely using a list of words, not that that these Philippian Christians wouldn't have gone straight to the Bible to think of, but they would have gone to stoic philosophers of the day. That Paul is, is adopting language that these Philippian Christians would have grown up hearing from birth because of the the philosophies and, and, and the thought process of the Greco Roman world. Just go read, if you want to, go, go read Plato or someone like that or Aristotle. You see all throughout their works uh, discussions of the good and the beautiful and the just and things like that. This isn't something that Paul is, is like somehow unknown. To the people of the ancient world this isn't somehow in a vacuum he is saying you know you've heard about these things your whole life from these words and concepts these philippian christians would have known from birth from growing up in a roman colony of philippi now i think this is important for us to understand as christians and i think too that if we really just examine the language, we, we don't really even have to know that these things are from Stoic philosophy. I mean, it's good that scholars told me that. But if we just look at the language in there, and we really just think about what it's saying, it seems like Paul is saying whatever you find anywhere that is good or just or moral or pure. It seems that's what he's saying. And as Christians, again, I think this is important because in so many ways, Paul tells us, and I think we rightly know and understand that this world is not our home. Paul calls us strangers, or he says our citizenship is in heaven. Peter says that we are exiles. We're living in a world that in many ways is not our home. Our home is with the Lord in heaven. And we're, again, as we have sung and everything so many times this morning, we're on a journey. We're on a race home. All of that is true. But I think by using the philosophy of the day, Paul is, first of all, telling these Philippian Christians, and he's telling us this morning, that this world, though fallen still has many vestiges of the goodness of God left. We live in what a lot of scholars call a post-Christian society. Uh, one particular scholar named Charles Taylor, he wrote a book called A Secular Age, which I listened to on Audible. I started reading it, and then I switched and listened to it on Audible, and man, that book is hard. If you're like... If you're trying to drive or like shampoo your hair or whatever while you're listening to a secular age, uh, you lose half of it. I mean, you have to like, really, that's the kind of thing you have to sit and just zone in on and like block everything else out. But basically, Charles Taylor, he says, look, I'm, I'm examining here how our society has gone from accepting belief in God as rational and good... Somehow, that in the Western society used to be the thought, and now it's flipped, and belief in God is being assaulted as irrational and evil. How did this happen? How did this change happen? That's what his book examines. But you see, living in an age like ours, a post-Christian society where that has happened, according to Charles Taylor, it's easy... For those of us who claim to be Christians living in an age like this, I think to do one of two things. We can either completely capitulate to society. We can give up on Christianity completely. We can reject the faith as incompatible with our modern world. We have to get with it. Uh, We have to embrace what our world teaches us. This is outdated. It's outmoded and we have to fully embrace the world as it is. And I think we see this. We see this if those of you who, who've, who have gone online or read in magazines, deconversion stories. Uh, maybe the most well-known is John Piper's son, but there are Christians all over, some of whom are sort of celebrities, maybe in Christian bands or whatever, who have come out and said, look, I'm no longer a Christian. I reject the whole thing. It's all a bunch of nonsense, they make it very public, I'm embracing everything that this world uh, is telling me, and I've never been happier in my life than in throwing away Christianity. Or, you know, living in a post-Christian society as Christians, we could go the completely opposite direction. We could, rather than sort of giving up completely on Christianity, we can give up completely on our culture and on our neighbors, we can, instead of throwing our faith away, we can essentially throw this world away. We can say, look, you know, there's no redeeming this world. Uh, it's all going to hell in a handbasket. I can see the writing on the wall. Uh, we've gone too far, and there's just no redemption for our world. And so I am just going to, you know, go become, essentially live as a monk, not as the detective uh, but as a uh, medieval monk, essentially <laughs> hunkering, <laughs> hunkering down. That was for my kids. They love monk. And actually, you guys do too. Uh, but I think what Paul is, is calling us here is, is to, to sort of co-opt Tim Keller a third way. He, he's not calling us either to, to wholesale embrace the culture and reject God, And he's also not calling us to wholesale reject our culture in embracing God. I mean, obviously, we are to wholly and fully and totally embrace God. But you see, I think because of the specific era that we live in, not only because we're distracted all the time, but also because we're distracted by social media. Social media, I mean, it's well have been well documented. Social media has led to so many of us uh, finding and being drawn to and running to essentially small echo chambers where we know what we believe, we know what's right, it's everything that I hold to and I'm just going to find the people online that say exactly what I believe and I'm not going to hear any other voice And I'm just going to delve into that every day and I'm going to get more and more angry with the people who don't hold to every single thing that I believe. And that's often what we do. So, we either, if we go the one route, we either go and listen all day to people who encourage us to deconvert and to fully embrace LGBT and all the other things that our, our society is lifting up that is completely against Scripture. Or, we decide, hey, that's not me. I am standing strong. And so we go and we just listen to and embrace people that tell us that this world is going to hell in a handbasket. And we ought not engage with anyone who, who isn't fully committed to the Christian faith. And thereby, we stop being witnesses to our neighbors who need to hear the gospel. But think about this. Paul, if he is doing this, he's telling the Philippians during the reign of Nero during the pagan society of the Greco-Roman world, that they can still look around them, that that their society that has fully embraced paganism, that yet they can still look around, and they can, if they think about it deeply and reflect deeply, see the work of God in their society. Paul is saying, look, look, Whatever is true. He's not saying everything is true. You see the distinction there. He's not saying look around and everything you see in society is true. He's saying look around and examine what's around you. Whatever is true of that. Whatever is noble. Whatever is honorable. Whatever is just. In a fallen world, there's going to be much that won't be. Because of sin, every culture has twisted and distorted and suppressed the light of God where it is found. John 3, 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And yet, Scripture speaks all the time of God's common grace. Common grace is not saving grace. Saving grace, when we think of grace, oftentimes our mind goes straight to saving grace. Saving grace, of course, is what I talked about earlier in the sermon. It's that grace that uh, seeks us out, that finds us as lost sinners needing salvation. It unites us to Christ, it brings us to repentance, it gives us new hearts and minds, it gives us the ability to understand and embrace the gospel. But common grace is what we also hear exists in this world. Jesus says, listen, Matthew 5, 45, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. He's, you know, he's obviously said more before this. For God makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Romans 13, Paul's talking about government, which we pray for every Sunday, pretty much. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? Because God has given them to us. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. More common grace. Can you imagine a world... That didn't have policemen and... Now, obviously, as Jeff just prayed, policemen are sinners and they can go wrong. But imagine a world with no law, no order, no police, no judges. What kind of world would that be? The government is a gift from God, a a gift of common grace. Paul says in Acts 17 when he's talking to pagans on uh, Mars Hill, the Athenians... Paul says, look, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, and he determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Essentially, God has given to all people, not just Christians, but to all people, their gifts and skills and talents. And that's what we see in this world. When when I, I've said this before, but I choose a dentist or a doctor, not because he or she is a Christian. If I happen to find out at some point in my conversation that he or she is a Christian, great. That's a nice bonus, right? We can have conversations about how was worship on Sunday? Uh, You know, how's your walk with the Lord? I mean, those things can happen, but I would rather have a dentist who's a non-Christian who's going to keep my teeth from falling out than a Christian dentist who does does a bad job. If that makes sense. That's common grace. A dentist who is an unbeliever who knows really well how to fix teeth and keep teeth healthy. Another way of putting this, when we think of God's common grace, is that all truth found anywhere is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. If, I mean... Plato, he probably said a lot of things that are true. And if true, then they are God's truth. He wasn't saying them out of a heart that loves the Lord Jesus Christ. But by God's common grace, he figured it out. All beauty is God's beauty. James 1.17, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I experienced this, interestingly, after studying this all week, yesterday. Uh, Michelle and I, and and my dad, went to a concert that Luke, uh, Luke is a violist, he played in what's called the P.M.E.A., some of you may know that, uh, uh, orchestra, and they had their concert yesterday. And it was amazing. I mean, from, I I, I sat in awe of the skill level and the talent of these high school musicians. I've been to uh, the Meyerhoff Symphony. To me, uh, this sounded just as good. I know Luke, when he got home, said I messed up so many times, but uh, I couldn't hear it, you know? Uh, They looked and sounded amazing. I don't know how many of those uh, students are Christians. I mean, if we believe scripture, then narrow is the road that leads to heaven, right? Probably most are not. As I sat there, though, and I listened to the music written by Dvorak, who, as far as I know, is not a Christian, as I listened in a room that had been acoustically built to be perfect acoustically, and I thought of the skilled laborers who put that room together as I thought of the people who made the acoustic panels that were behind the orchestra that that made the music, and I thought of the people who thought of that and and invented those panels and put those up there and made them, as I thought, and I looked at the, the skill of the musician's fingers, and as I thought of the composition that Dvorak brilliantly wrote, and I thought of our ears and how they've been wonderfully and skillfully made to hear this music and find emotion from it, I couldn't help but think, when it was all over, how great is our God? How amazing is our God? That entire thing, whether they knew it or not, whether the men who built that, that uh, uh, place where we, where we listened knew it or not, whether the, the people who designed those acoustic panels knew it, or whether any of those students up there knew it or not, all of those things glorify our God in heaven. That's what we look carefully for. But Paul says this, essentially when he gets into verse 9, how is it that we can, with precision, look at what's going on in our society and determine if it's good? Because one thing that we know, good in a world, a society like ours, really is relative. You've heard that. Statement many times, I'm sure. Uh, So if we're just going by um, what we think is good or honorable or lovely, we can go off course. And that's why Paul closes everything out here in verse 9 with the infallible word of God. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. One New Testament scholar says this, Paul encourages the Philippians that even though they are presently citizens of heaven, living out the life of the future as they await its consummation, they do not altogether abandon the world in which they used to and still do live. That's what we were just talking about. As believers in Christ, they will embrace the best of that world as well as long as it is understood in the light of the cross. How do we recognize and appreciate what is good and just and honorable and excellent and lovely? We do so in light of the infallible Word of God. See, if there's one thing on this earth that is perfectly true, perfectly honorable, perfectly just, perfectly pure, perfectly lovely, perfectly commendable, perfectly excellent, and perfectly worthy of praise, it's right here. The one thing that we can find in this creation, in fact, Jesus says, though heaven and earth will perish, the word of the Lord will stand forever. So this is what we use as our measuring rod. Now notice here the distinction that Paul is making. He is telling them, look, I want you to think deeply about the good that you see in the culture around you. Don't abandon it but I want you to practice the good that you heard in my word, or, well, Paul says, from me, and saw in me as an apostle. Paul, of course, is reflecting back on roughly 10 years ago when he planted that church. Again, as we've mentioned, about 10 years prior to writing this letter, Paul arrived in Philippi. He taught the word of God. He planted this church. And Paul says, look, think back to then. What did you Hear from me, right? What did you learn from me? What did you receive and hear and see in me? Well, what did Paul do? When Paul arrived, he taught them the gospel. Paul did exactly there where, what he did in every other place. In every other place he went, he would go into the synagogues and he would teach them. He would teach them how Christ is the focal point of the entire Bible, how everything comes to its focus in the Lord Jesus Christ. How justification works, sanctification works, all of these things that he taught, he taught them there. He taught them, in essence, the gospel, the truth about Jesus. He says, look, think about what you received from me. That word received is, a, is, is, is slightly different from learned. Learned would be you learn the gospel. Received is talking about traditions that are handed down. So Paul says... You received from me things like baptism. You received from me things like the Lord's Supper. You received from me confessions and creeds from the church and things that I learned from others. You heard the things you heard about me. That, again, I think is slightly different. He's not here talking about the gospel, which is what you learned, but what you've heard about me. What have they heard about Paul? They've heard that he's suffering for the sake of Christ, that he's imprisoned for Christ. They heard when he arrived all of the things that happened to him. They heard about his imprisonment in Philippi, all of the things that they hear about the Christian life in Paul and the way that he lived among them, how he took things to God in prayer, how he prayed for them, how he lived in a godly way among them. In all of these things taken together, we are to understand how we are to live our life as Christians in this world. Jeff, in his uh, books that he recommends, his, I guess, is it 10 or 12? 12, right? 12 books? It was 12, yeah. Uh, anyway, um, my list is coming out. Uh, bear with me. Um, but Paul talk, I mean, uh, uh, Jeff talks about a book that, that I've seen recommended all over the place. Uh, is it biblical, critical theory? Okay. And um, I, I have read uh, some of that so far, and it is excellent. But, but from the, the uh, intro of that, Tim Keller says this. I, th- I thought this was good. He says, you see, every culture deploys multiple patterns, narratives, pictures, and images, vocabulary to create a world. But the Bible has its own narratives, images, patterns that enable us to analyze any culture at the deepest level and to critique and appreciate it, while at the same time preventing us from being captured and co-opted by it. That's what's going on here. Our thinking, and specifically thinking about what Scripture says, ought to influence our living. It's what we can simply refer to as discipleship. Discipleship. Discipleship, you could say, is instruction coupled with imitation. Instruction coupled with imitation. We see this in Scripture. Scripture. Ephesians 6.4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. How do you do that? Well, you instruct and you imitate. Titus, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and train the younger women. Parents, what, what do your children see in you? I was just talking to uh, someone um, who's been coming regularly here to the church from another church, and he, uh, he told me, hey, you know, it's amazing how many children you have here. How wonderful to see all of these children running all over the place. Um, what, what do your children see from you? What do they see from you with regard to Sunday mornings? Do they see from you, that the hour and a half or three hours, whatever it may be, that whether you come to Sunday school or not, that that you're here and gathering together for worship is of uh, primary importance to you in life? That it is the number one thing that you revolve the rest of your week around? Or do they see... You demonstrating and teaching to them that essentially Sunday morning is expendable. That whenever something else, whether it be sports or whether it be I'm just kind of tired or whether it be we sort of stayed up late last night or maybe there's a football game on today, but something has trumped worshiping the Lord on Sunday mornings. What is it that they're seeing from you? What are you demonstrating to them? How are you discipling them? Conversely, what do they see from you, Christian parents, those of you who make Sunday a priority, those of you who, whose kids know when they wake up on Sunday, I know where we're going today. We're going to church, no question about it. Do they see from you that Sunday morning is just a religious ritual? That, yeah, we go to church, but Monday through Saturday, Christ has zero influence on my parents and how they live their life. It's interesting, years ago, I've I've shared this before, but a sociologist named Christian Smith wrote a book called Soul Searching, where he examined and interviewed a bunch of college students who grew up in the church, claimed to be Christians, but had walked away uh, from the faith. And a couple of things he found. One was that when they described the faith they walked away from, it actually wasn't Christianity. So that got him thinking, what's being taught in churches today? That The the faith that they actually professed, he said, was uh, moralistic, therapeutic deism, which I'm not going to get into, uh, but you can go look it up yourself. It's all over the internet. But his findings when he examined those who walked away from the faith and those who stayed true to the faith while in college. He compared them both. And what he said was he really couldn't find a common denominator between churches. Uh, It didn't matter whether uh, they went to a 5,000-member megachurch or whether they went to a a church with 50 people. It didn't really matter whether they had a, a hopping youth group uh, full of all kinds of things and, and, and uh, you know, events and all that, or whether they had no youth group in their church. That, that the common denominator with all the kids that sort of stayed true to the faith, the number one thing was that their parents demonstrated that Jesus mattered in their lives Sunday through Saturday. If what they heard on Sunday morning, because they were there every Sunday, was lived out during the week, that's what impacted these children the most, was being discipled by their parents. That, to me, is what scares me the most. Because as a pastor, I have to be here on Sundays, as a pastor, I'm the one that says this every Sunday. Okay? You're, I'm not just hearing it alongside of my kids. They're hearing me teach it. So what I fear is that my kids will not see in me that I will literally not practice what I preach. That is a sobering thought. Well, how can we Christian disciple one another. Well, I went online, I found the 9 Marks Journal of Discipling. Here are just some really simple things, really simple. I mean, it's not even like you have to, you know, do major study. Few things you can do, arrive at church early, gather at church gatherings early and stay late. Practice hospitality with members of your church. Ask God for strategic friendships. If possible, include a line item in your budget for weekly time with fellow Christians. Ask Christians about themselves, their testimony, their job, their walk with Christ, and so on. Share about yourself. Look for ways to have spiritual conversations. Maybe decide to read the Bible or some other Christian literature with another Christian. Pray with them. And Paul gives this promise, Christian. He says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. He ends this section similarly to the way he ended the first. The first four ended with, and the peace of God will be with you. Here, he just reverses it. The God of peace will be with you. Now last week I said, on the one hand, Whether you are a ball of anxiety or whether you are constantly in prayer to the Lord, casting your cares upon him, if you are in Christ, then you are at peace with God. In one sense, the objective peace of God is with you. You are no longer at war. Christ has made your peace You are forever secure in Christ. However, in another sense, Paul is saying, if you choose to not cast your cares upon God, if you choose to hold your cares in, then you will be a bundle of worry rather than experiencing the peace of God that passes all understanding. Similarly, I think to this. On the one hand, however True, you live your life according to God's word if you are in Christ. And if you're in him and you have the Holy Spirit, then your life will change at some level. No no doubt, because it's the work of the Holy Spirit. But no matter how faithful you are, in one sense, Christ is always with you. He said that the Holy Spirit will be in you and that he and the Father will dwell in you. You have no fear that the God of peace is not with you. But in another sense, Christian, I'm sure you've experienced in your life, the more you are faithfully walking according to this word, the more you feel his presence. The more you know he is with you. And the more you neglect this word, and the more you go and walk according to the ways of our world, the more you will feel that he is distant from you. And Paul is saying, walk this way, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. One of the things that he gives us to practice these things is the Lord's Supper, which we come to today.